0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Teatum Salongkomer, the host of this channel. And today I am joined by Dr. Dio uh, to talk about his book, Kings, Spirits and Memory in Central India, Enchanting the State. Um, So... Coming to this book, I think this book is a very interesting work on the uh, anthropological history uh, of what the author has worked on. And I think this is a very substantial work as to understanding the tribal societies, especially in the Indian context. And I think this is where the value of these books comes into, where the the, uh, historians and people from other disciplines can really clean from this book. And I think for me personally also, this book has really uh, been interesting in the sense of how the narration has been brought out from the uh, author's perspective, but also at the same time, the author's um, entanglement with the society and the community itself. So I think uh, to the readers, I think this will be also a very interesting work in the sense of how the author has a history and uh, brings up with all of this uh, narration and the narrative that has uh, happened in the society that that uh, the author is working on. So uh, without much ado, let me just straight away go to the author himself, Dr. Dio, and um, talk to him. So uh, Dr. Dio, uh, can you tell me something about yourself, your background? Yeah. Oh,
0: yes, uh, so I teach at uh, St. Stephen's College. I did my early degrees in history from St. Stephen's and Delhi University, and uh, later on a PhD from Emory University in Atlanta in the United States. And uh, I have been teaching in St. Stephen's since about 1995, with sort of brief breaks in between for my PhD and other academic assignments, one of uh, which was also a fellowship at the Indian Institute of Advanced Study in Shimla. And uh, I come from the princely family, the former princely family of Kankir in central India, uh, whose history it is that I have presented in this book.
1: Ah, That's quite interesting. So you come from, as you have said, you uh, talk about where you come from. You came from the princely state and as you have talked about that, you came from there and you are part of the community. So um, this project of the book, uh, how did it come about? I'm sure you are part of it. So it has something to do with it, of your personal history and memory of it. And also at the same time uh, coming along with your uh, academic background as a history and and your academic endeavour uh, inside. so what is the background of the this work so i would think that there were two kinds of
0: backgrounds one background is in my personal situation and uh, the other background is of course in uh, the kind of work that is being done in history and other disciplines in relation to tribal peoples and state formations and these are of course as you will see very connected in my case In the first instance, uh, what happened really is that, as you know, princely families had uh, to merge their states into the Indian Union in about 1947-48, many willingly, many, of course, uh, in other ways. And uh, then a new chapter started for us. Uh, My family, like other families of erstwhile princely uh, states, didn't quite know what their role was in New India. And uh, this is something that I also experienced as a student in Delhi University, in St. Stephen's College, where uh, I was having education in uh, the liberal arts, uh, but of course also had the baggage of, uh, uh, you know, the princely past uh, of the country. And so uh, when one looked at what one could do as a historian, one was, of course, extremely sort of uh, empathetic to efforts in history and other related social sciences and humanities project to write about the marginalised. But the question was that could I, who had a history in the princely states, actually write about them, about say the tribal peoples who are a majority in a way in this part of uh, the world, uh, but not exactly in uh, sort of Kankade, as I might have the occasion to explain to you a little later. And so that was one. The other context was uh, the fact that a very rich uh, body of literature had emerged from uh, the work of, say, the subaltern studies and, uh, again, other related academic uh, positions and and groups and and schools and traditions, which were exploring interesting ways of writing about those who had not been represented in uh, the historical enterprise uh, in uh, the dominant sort of academic space. So, uh, you know, there was that question of of how to do it. And I was, of course, coming, as I told you, from central India, which, is, which has a very large tribal population. So uh, these two things actually came together in some senses, uh, as you can see. And uh, this led me to think about what kind of history I could write of my own place uh, and of a of communities of people to which i belonged but from whence i had also moved to other spaces like that of the academia etc uh, so i think that was uh, the main sort of context yeah, yeah. and background
1: yeah um, that's really interesting and um, when the readers will go through the book then i think will see the um, richness of the uh, historical background and also at the same time the more conversation that can emerge of out of this work that uh, our Dr. Tio has done. So uh, to go into the books and to book and to uh, you know bring out the backdrop and the background of the book itself. So you talk about uh, the uh, Jadisgarh and specifically the Kanker people. So uh, can you give a brief uh, introduction to Jadisgarh and specifically the Kanker people? Yeah.
0: So uh, the history of Chhattisgarh has not quite, I would say, been properly written. In the sense that uh, Chhattisgarh, of course, is a state within the Indian Union now; it has very clear territorial boundaries, it has a governmental mandate, etc., etc. But historically, what has this region been? And uh, if we look at uh, standard textbooks, or even, of course, very involved history writing uh, on various uh, very important and significant aspects of Uh, our history, then you will find that uh, the area known as Chhattisgarh has a very marginal sort of location there. It is mostly the history of North India, like, of course, you know, in the case of North East also, which masquerades as the history of Chhattisgarh. So, uh, you know, that's one uh, thing that we must remember. The other is, uh, then within uh, Chhattisgarh in what is called the district of Bastar, which comprises erstwhile princely states of Bastar and Kankir uh, there is a different kind of a situation. Uh, as you know, there's been uh, a conflict, armed conflict, in fact, uh, for some time now. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, there was that as well. You know, So the part of the country, part of Chhattisgarh that I have come from has been rather disturbed, but not so much Kankir, because although Kankir is part of the Basta district, who used to be the part, the part of the larger Bastar district, and even today is considered part of the Bastar Commissionerate. kanker has its own separate history. And it is connected to Bastar, but also somewhat different from it. Usually Chhattisgarh has been seen from the lens of Basta. Uh, tribal histories in central India also often find a certain focus only through the history of Bastar. The history of Basta, though connected, as I told you, to other places, is also different in its own way, and has been, I think, stereotyped uh, to become a certain kind of history of the tribal peoples of Central India, of Chhattisgarh. And what I wanted to go to is a place like Kankir, which is actually very nondescript, because it doesn't quite attract the attention of the state uh, and of the powers that be. Uh, it, It doesn't have too many resources, let me put it straight away. And uh, so, you know, it has been uh, really in the margins of the margin, actually, you know, in some senses, uh, because it doesn't even quite fit the definition of a proper margin. You can't really write a proper history, subaltern history of Chhattisgarh, because the Chhattis, uh, sorry, uh, of Kanker, because Kankir has what I would call mixed tribe-caste populations. If you look at the uh, territory of the erstwhile pincy states, uh, then the tribals do not, so-called tribal peoples don't have a majority. But what I'm saying is that these are not tribal societies and uh, societies of what are today called other backward castes. These are mixed societies uh, that have their own definition of themselves. Uh, In this case, I have come across one definition and one description, self-description, that is used very often, which is called "humkal," which means the people of the land, which I think is a very capacious sort of definition. So I think... In terms of tribal histories and the histories of marginalized, also there is probably some uh, learning to be done here about how we must not fetishize, uh, you know, the subaltern.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, that's uh, that's really true. Uh, so coming to the first chapter, as you have talked about the, uh, you know the king as I. And I think that is a very interesting chapter to me because you also localize yourself in the community and also at the same time you describe your initial reluctance to be part of the ritualistic aspect, but also at the same time you had to come back and all all of the stories that goes into... That that was, I mean, for the readers, I think that will be really uh, interesting to see the dynamics of um, the author being uh, there and then the the reluctance and all of those aspects. So coming to that aspect, right? uh, You talk about the the ancestral spirit and, you know, its relation to certain uh, Hindu festivals and rituals, also. So, uh, um, so what 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 is this uh, angatyo? And you know how do we how do we understand it? And you know ritualistically, uh, I mean, I've seen the picture of the uh, that uh, thing that we have put up, and I, I think that was quite fascinating to me actually. The that thing made with the wood, and you know all all of those uh, that depiction of this very deity. So I think that that was something quite interesting. So uh, can you elaborate more on this uh, angatyo? Yeah
0: yeah there's, there are many aspects to that one is of course the term angadev is usually used to refer to the highest kind of ancestral deity among these communities of the bhumkal that i study and there are many other kinds of ancestral deities and spirits etc etc also and there's a whole uh, you know complex uh, society of these uh, spirits and deities and and people and and so on so forth uh, so that's one the other is that uh, the angadev Um, are, of course, uh, the ancestral deities of what are mostly recognized as tribal peoples today uh, in Chhattisgarh and other parts of India, uh, like the use of the word scheduled tribe, although, of course, as you know, the word Adivasi comes into use in my part of the country more these days than otherwise, unlike, of course, in the Northeast. Uh, But uh, actually, they seem to be shared uh, by other non tribal peoples as well. They actually belong to the Bhumkal, the people of the land. So uh, the ancestral deities emerge from people's memories of when they first started settling and cultivating these lands. And they continue to be thought of as forces that uh, make possible, uh, you know, life. And, uh, you know, they are supposed to help uh, people live good lives. And uh, the peoples who live here are, as I told you, of a very mixed sort of background. And uh, as uh, people began to settle down of different ills, of different uh, groups and categories, what we call categories today, etc., etc., they all merged their own ancestors into these ancestors, including the ancestor of the king, who I uh, have said might actually be part of these communities, even if. Uh, the king was not part of these communities, eventually the system worked in such a way and the people's sense of living in the same land and making their own destinies in the same land was such that the merging of the ancestors of various kinds of people uh, became a a very normal sort of uh, routine, a rhythm. And there are all kinds of uh, ancestors that actually coexist uh, within the rather omnibus sort of category at the highest level of the Angadev. Even as the Angadev, it can also be traced back to particular so-called tribal groups. So the Angadev has the ability to extend its scope and, of course, uh, you know, return to its roots, as it were, in such a way that roots themselves become very extensive. And uh, the extensiveness of the whole thing actually often finds focus in the precise uh, Person and uh, you know figure, an entity of the Angadis.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, as I clean through the chapters, I mean, these uh, chapters very much risk like an um, anthropological account, but also at the same time as a historian, there is certain um, methodological and theoretical background that you bring to it, which uh, makes the work also at the same time a valuable historical account in that sense. So um, the the, the um, in one of the chapters, that is the second chapter, you talk about this uh, aspect of it, the historical aspect of it, doing history in the sense of how do we understand the this people's history, and uh, you were you you uh, put yourself in the position where you say that the the normal historical account that goes about, and when you talk about the colonial writings and all of this aspect, you say that this doesn't represent the people in a, in in a way that uh, it is really uh, been you know lived and practiced embedded in their own uh, social reality. And then uh, that is where you talk about, you know, the, the narratives of the Angadiyo, the, the, the ancestral deities, and how you try to understand the people's imagination of the polit- uh, political and, and the, the power politics and all of those aspects. So um, this historical uh, methodological aspect that you're talking about. So uh, can you please elaborate a little bit more on this aspect of the historical methodology that you're talking about? Yes. Yeah.
0: So uh, the historical, in the very literal sense of the term, would be, of course, that uh, which has been narrated from uh, archival sources, and uh, you know, and which has a certain uh, tone and tenor. Uh, It's a rational narrative. It is a narrative that is comprehensible, uh, you know, in the language that all of us used uh, as a language of uh, public discourse, of uh, governance, etc., etc. What is called modern. Uh, and uh, but i am kind of forcing the historical like many other historians are also uh, for the historical itself to become more equitable we are forcing it out into a terrain where uh, it is about the past and not necessarily about only a certain kind of past not only the archival past but also the memorial past you know the mythical past uh, and so on so forth and uh, uh, this, of course, has the danger of uh, you know making history slip into mythology or uh, other things, which as I can understand, will be the concern of many people today. So there, of course, many of us are saying that uh, history has to be multivocal, that uh, there must be all kinds of voices. And uh, the problem is when either the mythical or the historical arrogate for themselves Uh, the uh, right to be the only positions, uh, you know, within the historical. So when the modern historical says that it alone will monopolize the historical space, uh, or if the now, as you know, in the present circumstances, the mythical is becoming or claiming to be historical. So uh, even that is uh, a problem. What I'm saying is that uh, history, I think, must be re- uh, Re kind of fashioned and repracticed as uh, something that attends to the many different voices of the past, whether they be archival, whether they be mythical, they be mythical archival, uh, whatever else, anthropological, uh, whatever else uh, you might
1: find there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's quite interesting. So uh, when you talk about um, in the in one of the chapters when you talk about kings and his, uh, you know, the Raja and his uh, uh, complex relationship to, uh, to the society and, you know, the societal norms and all of those aspects. So what role does uh, this Raja, the king, has uh, in, in the society and uh, what does this king fulfill and, you know, for the people, what does this king mean, really mean for the people and also at the same time for the society in that sense? Yeah. So
0: historically, the king and I would say the people have probably had different understandings of what their uh, roles have been or what the roles of the king should be. Um, In the king's own statement, which is the annual administrative reports of the Kankir princely state, uh, you will find that the king uh, again sort of uh, decides to claim for himself the power of a ruler who actively rules a people who then accept the rule uh, rather passively. Uh, it is the king who uh, basically controls uh, the agency of how uh, you know a place will be and how it will be uh, lived and so on and so forth. On the other hand, when I look at the Angadeva accounts, the accounts that are given in the context of these ancestral deity practices, then I find that the people have a different sense of the king. The people believe that the king is only one of the many forces of the boom or the earth, or the land, or the world. And not necessarily uh, the most important and the most powerful one. And uh, that the king might have his terms of engagement, but so does this world have its own uh, set of terms of engagement as well. And uh, it draws the king out into this world and entangles him in the relationships of power that obtain there. Which often work on terms that are not that of the modern princely state and its governmental technologies, practices, uh, claims, and, and discourses.
1: Mm, yeah, 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 and that is where uh, the I think you talk about this in chapter. Chapter four, the world of the Angadio, and I think this is where you talk about the the, the, uh, Pum, the land, and also its relation to the ancestral and non-ancestral forces, and you talk about how these forces uh, help people uh, in their conception of the world that they live in, and I think uh, this aspect of, so uh, how do do they understand this boom, the land, and also how do we divide the ancestral and non-ancestral forces uh, I know, how do we as, understand the distinguishing aspect of these ancestral and non-ancestral f- forces? And uh, that is where I think, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think that's the question asked to okay, How do we understand this poop and how do we uh, understand the distinguishing aspect of ancestral and non-ancestral forces?
0: So I think there are two parts to your question. One is how do they understand their world? Uh, how do these communities understand their world? whom the Karl understands its world. And two uh, why or how do I make the distinction between ancestral and non-ancestral deities? So, in the first case, uh, I think I have perhaps been able to touch only the uh, only one part of the total, very complex and, uh, you know, very, very difficult to finally kind of close uh, understanding of, uh, their understanding of the world. You can't say that, well, this is what it is. Two plus two is four and I've got now, I think I'm just kind of intimating one uh, one way of entering and into some kind of engagement, if not a full understanding of that. And there I find that, very broadly speaking, again, with all the caveats that are required, and I start with one, saying that I probably don't understand the whole thing, is that uh, they probably see the world as comprised, comprising many different kinds of forces of a you know, of uh, ancestors, ancestral deities, uh, gods, uh, uh, and non ancestral deities. I'll come to the ancestral, non ancestral uh, questions specifically later. Uh, the king, the king's administration, the Malguzars, uh, the king's revenue collectors, uh, the various other kinds of people related to the state, uh, you know, and uh, gods, deities, uh, all kinds of entities that are not very easily put within one sort of uh, uh, place of being, as it were, in the modern. So, in the modern sense, which is the disenchanted world that we have, gods don't exist, Uh, you know, we exist. Um, If gods exist, they exist in imagination. Uh, Spirits, of course, uh, are, are a thing of the past, so past, present, future. Human, divine, etc. All these things get mixed up. Uh, it's just recognizing, openly recognizing, many different kinds of forces that can have very different ontological sort of uh, constructions and, and uh, uh, beings. And they all come together. And eventually, they're all seen as interacting with each other. And the Bhumkar is interested in uh, getting these relationships to be of a certain kind that allow it to carry out its own life rhythms. So there is, uh, you know, the idea of a balance of forces. Uh, balance of forces meaning that these forces are not uh, ever fully neutralized. They always held in tension. And the balance is constantly moving this or that, that way. And so it's never a, a finery and fully achieved kind of peace, as it were. You know, Pax, Bhumkal. no, not at all. It is a tension-filled lesson. People are constantly working to... But the idea is not to allow anybody to take an upper hand, anybody to establish the kind of superiority that the king and the princely state often claim in their documents that they have. So that's. Uh, but this is just the beginning. I'm sure that there are many other things that one needs to uh, find out. And as you see, this is not something that is unique to these people. Uh, variations of this, versions of this uh, can be found in many uh, societies, uh, you know, tribal or non-tribal, because what I'm saying is that our societies are always connected uh, and uh, in ways that are not difficult, which are difficult to separate. On the question of ancestral and non-ancestral forces, I am what you will see me doing in the book is that I want to take the reader into a world that doesn't, see itself as we see it. So I often have to start with categories that will be comprehensible and uh, legible to us uh, in our uh, from our modern vantages. But what I do over time is to then unravel all of that and to show how they all get mixed up in this field of forces where you can't really separate them. Uh, you know, in terms of who they are, how they act, what their relationships are, etc. So this uh, section where I actually discuss the ancestral and the non ancestral deities separately is a kind of heuristic device. It's a kind of strategy that I use to start off the conversation uh, before I can mix things up. You know, because if I start with a mixed up thing, the reader might get confused straight away. So I, I, I show the reader, I kind of introduce. So I, for example, this is a strategy I follow throughout. I start with terms that we recognize as our own uh, and terms uh, with which we work. Uh, and these are sometimes the only terms that we recognize as legitimate within our discourse. And then I gradually give them up to get into another set of terms, which are not quite translated fully, but my sense is once again to intimate, to at least begin to intimate uh, another world.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's really true. And in connection to that one, you you also talk about the level of uh, deification of ancestors. And uh, uh, so, uh, what, why, why, what, what really is this? What what is this level of deification of uh, ancestors? And you know, what role does it have in the society? Hmm.
0: So here I work again with our idea of what a deity is, uh, a deity and a devotee. You see, and that this is something that, once again, is not entirely uh, settled for our case either. I mean, there are so many different kinds of deity-devotee relationships. For example, if you look at what comes to mind, obviously, to a historian, the case of the Sufis and the Bhaktas of the uh, 14th and the 15th centuries, then you will see that there are so many different paths, to uh, to this phenomena, uh, to uh, devotion, uh, so uh, deity and devotee can often be or mean many different things for many different peoples and traditions. Even within uh, what we understand and and uh, you know accept our, as our own world. So uh, I'm kind of pushing that a little further, and I'm saying that uh, again, starting with the idea of deity and de- devotee. And so I use the real word deity. I show you how this relationship and many other aspects that don't always make the application of the term deity a kind of valid exercise.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that kind of uh, distinction and uh, you know the narrative that you brought out is something which is uh, very, very valuable that can be really uh, seen in, in your work. So uh, coming to uh, the last chapter where you talk about, this is the tale of the Raja, the King. And uh, that is where you talk about the 12 villages, cause of the 12 villages, and the very uh, functioning of the king in the sense of uh, its sovereignty, and also where you talk about uh, that is where you talk about the political imagination of the people uh, in that sense. So, so um, uh, how, how does this, um, the this, this citadel of the Raja, and, and then in, in its relation to the people, the villages, uh, uh, and its political ima- imagination work out?
0: So uh, the citadel, as we would understand it conventionally, would be uh, the most powerful space, uh, you know, uh, uh, site of the exercise of power. It is uh, the symbol of power. It is the place where the the executive resides. It is uh, the font of power. It is where power is concentrated and collected, contained, uh, and then applied from. So it is, in all senses, the uh, the reality and the symbol of the uh, the state or the king's power, the citadel. Uh, and uh, here the citadel is, uh, you know, Kankir. And uh, in Kankir specifically, there is a hill called the Garia Pahar, which uh, means uh, the hill fort. Or, uh, you know, if you want to read it uh, in a different way, uh, fort on the hill. And... Uh, uh, you know this is where i think the most uh, uh, brutal sort of uh, you know uh, example of the king's power uh, is uh, remembered and that is that there is a point the highest point on the hill from where it is said uh, the criminals of the kingdom would be hanged after they had been sentenced to their full view of the public so the hill towers over the town, so you can see it from everywhere. So you can imagine, uh, you know, that it was meant to uh, send uh, a message to everyone that the power of the king of the state had to be recognized, uh, you know, in all ways and uh, in at all times. Now, when I spoke to uh, the people, you know, who uh, live in and around and manage uh, many shines within the hill fort, Palace complex. Um, it is one of the few extant uh, forts. Extant in the ruins of it are uh, there of uh, in Chhattisgarh. So Chhattisgarh is supposed to be, uh, in, in you know, local understanding, a place historically of thirty-six forts. Chhattis thirty-six gar. But we haven't really been able to find thirty-six uh, guards. But this is one of the guards that uh, has been found. If it was ever part of that imagination of thirty-six pairs, it might not have been. But so when we when I spoke to the people responsible for this hill and the hill fort and the shines etc. located there, then they gave a different sense of the space. They said that this place was full of a large number of forces, ancestral, non ancestral deities, non-deities. Uh, you know, forces that bring good, forces that bring bad. Uh, so beneficent and uh, deficient forces, and uh, that uh, the king actually has access to the place only if the king sacrifices a goat on each step of the many steps that lead up to the top. So in a way, uh, they make it virtually impossible for the king ever to be able to climb uh, to what the king claims to be the font of his power. Uh, because uh, the king would then have to sacrifice hundreds of goats uh, to be able to do that. And uh, so in some ways, effectively, the king is barred from uh, going to this very uh, site of his power, which uh, is claimed in in governmental records and popular imagination about the king's power as being actually the, the symbol of the king's authority. So there are many other stories also, and I don't think I have time to go into them at the moment. But uh, so what happens is that local memory, these ancestral deity practices rework the understanding of the citadel as actually a fraught. Uh, You know, a citadel is a place where, in fact, the king's power becomes so completely challenged that uh, if there was a point to show how, in fact, in the people's imagination, the king was not what he was claiming to be and the prince's state could never really have been able to establish that kind of authority over them. And here is
1: yeah. the seats in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That brings out a very interesting aspect of the political authority and citadel in that sense. Uh, that's qu- quite really interesting. And uh, so. Um, your afterward is uh, something which uh, was quite important as i read through it because it's a it's a short one but also at the same time you uh, bring out the gist of uh, what you have been talking about and and in, in that uh, in the afterward you have a pictorial representation of what you call the alternate geometry of polity i mean uh, that is where so uh, in the in the afterward you talk about uh, the our conception of political, right? Our conception of political in relation to the Angadio uh, po- polity, in terms of Angadio polity. So uh, how, how do we understand uh, this Angadio uh, polity in relation to our conception of the political in essence?
0: Right. So I was uh, a little uneasy about the afterword. And uh, this was pointed to me, actually, uh, <laughs> before it was sent to uh, print. And I had second thoughts about it because uh, there are two parts to the afterword. One in which I write about this alternate geometry of power. And in the second, when I'm talking about, I think, what I could call an alternate geometry of history. Uh, So the first one is what I have uh, doubts about. Because there I let the historian get the better of me. I should have let the anthropologist uh, hold strong. And uh, what then I did was to try and see if I could articulate a kind of view of uh, politics. Uh, I meant not to. Uh, the idea was to constantly open it up and to leave leave it like that, lose. You know? But then, uh, as I said, the historian got the better of me. I, I thought I must put a fact or so down. And so I, I wrote uh, this thing, if you will allow me, very quickly to read. And uh, this is what I write uh, in that. Um, I first write about what the historical idea of the political might be. So, within this historical, absolutely synchronized temporality of state and history, is structured a polity which is unicentric, vertical, dichotomous, fixed-slash-rigid, and closed, where political power, authority, and sovereignty, or in other words, political capacity, are vested in the state and legitimated by its history. When the Angadeva accounts, anchored in their own language of power, transgress the temporal protocols of history, they articulate the idea of a polity that is pluricentric, horizontal, non-dichotomous, fluid and open in comparison to that of the state, where political power, authority and sovereignty are divided, contested and shared between the Raja-slash-state and the Bhoomka and its ancestral forces, in pursuit of the balance of the boom, which is always a work in progress. So uh, that is the sense. In the second part, as you know, which I think is the more valuable part, I'm just joining a large number of historians, anthropologists, who are now suggesting that we must have a more plural sort of histories and anthropologies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think. In that sense, the first part is also very valuable in the sense of how you bring out the uh, sharing of the political space uh, with the different, uh, you know, aspects of the society. And I think uh, that aspect and I, uh, I, yeah, that can be something which can be worked upon and deep talked and debated upon. And I know, I think, yeah, that's something yeah. which is very. So, valuable. if
0: I may, just uh, in, uh, say something more here. I was inspired to do this by a set of writings on the princely states of Orissa by. Uh, sort of uh, scholars, uh, I think, uh, coming mainly from the Herman Kolka kind of background and uh, who have worked on many small princely states in Orissa and also some works on the histories of the Himalayan states. Uh, And what they try to do is that they try and think about these alternate geometries. Uh, So, you know, they try and visualize what diagrammatically uh, it might look like. And uh, so I think I <laughs> I like that very much.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. thought I could that's... try it
0: out for for yeah, as well. That's
1: great. That, that, that will be for readers to go through the book and see. Uh, so uh, for me, my questions are, I mean, to, to me, what questions that I need to ask for the listeners to get a grasp of the book, I think for me, I think it's done. But do you have anything to say on your part, which I have missed out? Uh,
0: well, you, you know, I have... Uh, I've been giving these book talks at uh, very good places where friends and colleagues, scholars, etc. have uh, kindly invited me to share my understanding of the book and to present it before them. So there are a large number of uh, talks now that are available where you might also be able to see me and uh, you, know, you can have a look at uh, them uh, in my public profile. So, uh, they might help you with some more aspects of uh, the book. But I would invite you to uh, go and have a look at the book itself because it reads at many levels. It reads like a memoir. Uh, you know, it is about uh, a me, about uh, dilemmas that uh, people face in situations like mine, which I think is everybody's situation. We are all between different worlds. So, how do we mm, navigate? the pulls and pressures of these imperatives of these different worlds. So that's uh, one. The other, of course, as I said, it is about the history of tribal peoples. And what I'm asking is for uh, us not to uh, always uh, sort of work with this category of tribal or as closed sort of uh, categories, that you know, we are all communities that live in a mixed and interconnected ways. And uh, I think the reason for the alterity of uh, these communities in our present time, uh, the first reason, I think, is our othering of these communities as something else. Uh, so there are differences, of course, between societies and societies, but these differences, I think, are irreducible. You can't say that this is where a tribe ends and this is where a caste begins or this is where the gone tribe ends and the, you know, the other types begin and so on and so forth. That uh, it's important for us to understand that we have had mixed and shared des- destinies. And, uh, you know, that I think is uh, what is fundamental in to looking at questions of belonging, of identity, etc. Because otherwise, we will just fall into, I think, the lens or the analytic with which uh, colonialism sort of worked us over which is that they fixed identities in a way that I think had never been fixed before. And uh, now we are taking these uh, very seriously. And uh, what this can lead to, I think, is only division. And so it's important for us to, of course, understand our differences, uh, but also understand our commonalities.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I mean. Uh, for me personally, also, uh, among the people that I'm working, I think your work uh, will be very valuable for me personally also because of the kind of uh, people and the debates that you bring about in terms of trying to understand history, but also at the same time, the historical imagination of the people. So because among the people that I'm studying also, there are different communities who think about history in a different way. So I think uh, this work will also be very valuable for me personally. And I think, uh, th- uh, thank you for... If i me... I'm,
0: if I may, just one last. Uh, sure, sure, Can you tell me a little about your uh, work so that you know we can put it in conversation for the listeners also. Uh.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> so I, I'm working um, uh, in Northeast in one of the state called Nagaland uh, uh, among the Nagas, uh, specifically the Ao community. So I'm looking at religious syncretism. So before um, they had animism, and then the Christianity came about, and. Uh, a little bit more than a century ago, Christianity came, and then you know they got converted. And I think uh, that is where I'm uh, trying to understand the very syncretic aspect of uh, their uh, re- religion in terms of uh, its relation to the social cultural aspect, but also at the same time the institutional, the political aspect of it. Yeah.
0: And how, if I may ask, how far has your thesis developed, and are you about to complete it, and when will we have the pleasure to, to read it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'll be p- completing it by next year. So let's see. I've done all my fieldwork, everything. So uh, theoretical aspect, uh, writing, everything is going on now. Uh, yeah. So I'm planning. Yeah, it I'm to sure it'll it.
0: be a very uh,
1: important uh, work, and uh, there'll be a lot to learn from it. I look forward to it. Uh, thank, very much. You, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh. So, um, um, if anyone wants to uh, reach out to you regarding your work or anything else, uh, how can they reach out to you?
0: So uh, they could write to me at uh, my email ID, which is available on the website of uh, St. Stephen's College. Uh, In case, uh, you know, you want me to spell it out, it is APD at St. Stephen's, written without any marks, S T S T E P H E N S dot E-D-U. So please write to me there. I would love to, uh, you know, hear from you. And uh, there's a profile in academia, uh, ac- academia, academia.edu, I think. There's also one in LinkedIn. There's one on Facebook. So please use any of these channels to communicate with me. And I would love to hear uh, about what you have to say about my work.
1: Yeah. We have been wanting to have this conversation for so long. And, uh, you know, at, at the end, we could uh, make, make it. And uh, so... I know you have been with COVID and all these um, institutional regulations, whatever you have been busy with the family and with the institutional work, a lot of things. So, any interesting project uh, coming ahead of you that you are? Involved
0: yes, yeah. uh, it's been a difficult time for everyone, and I, uh, you know, I really understand how, what people must be going through, and I hope that everyone gets the strength to be able to cope in whatever way with these difficulties that have suddenly come upon us. And I'm grateful that you did not give up hope (laughs) despite my delays. Uh, So uh, many thanks to you. About my new work. So there are several projects uh, on the annual. One of course, is to uh, do some more history uh, in Chhattisgarh. And uh, Chhattisgarh, as you know, is a new state. And as I pointed out before, uh, you know, at least in the English language, we don't have uh, good works on Chhattisgarh or whatever there is uh, done by local historians, very valuable uh, but unfortunately it follows very much the pattern of the uh, center You know, so I think that uh, not that I want to write a, sp- a special, unique, sort of ethnocentric history of Chhattisgarh, not that at all. In fact, if anything the idea will be to open the idea of Chhattisgarh itself to a lot of Explorations. So I want to look at the. There were fourteen princely states in Chhattisgarh. Bastar has been, as I told you, studied a lot, and often it stands in. It stands in for uh, many things, for Chhattisgarh, for tribal people, etc. So I want to look at the other princely states. Kanke. Now there is a work by me, but there were twelve other princely states, and they comprise a very large area of central India. So I want to look at uh, other conceptions of polity. Uh, in these areas. So that's one. Uh, the second is I also want to look at monumental architecture across the princely states of Orissa and Shattazgarh. Orissa is contiguous and uh, so basically palace and other monumental architecture and do a social reading of it. You know? So in what ways were these spaces used and what do we know about uh, societies, about uh, power, about sovereignty, about uh, socialities, Uh, from these things, so that's uh, also another. Uh, I had the occasion to spend some time in Himachal at the Indian Institute of Advanced Study in Shimla, and uh, I, uh, you know, was given wonderful hospitality from the people of Himachal, and I got to learn a lot about the history. I'm very keen uh, to join, if someone is already doing this project, join um, anything that looks at the Social history, the cultural history of uh, apple, you know, the, the apple fruit, uh, which uh, has become so important. So there are economic and environmental studies of it, but not social culture. I think apple has changed a lot in Himachal. So I want to see uh, what it means here really to them. So these are some ideas in my mind.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting work that you'll be doing ahead. And also, yeah, it'll be really good. And for the upcoming scholars, also a very uh, you know interesting area to look upon. Yeah, and thank you, Dr. Dio, for being here in New Books Network and sharing your thoughts on your work. And I'm sure the listeners will really clean a lot from the book uh, as they go through it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.